Well, good morning. As, as Dave said, my name's Andy. I'm the Connections Pastor, and we're so excited you guys are on this journey with us. For the next four weeks, we are going to, as Dave said, be looking at some of the phrases that Jesus uttered as he hung on the cross and what those meant back then and what they mean to us today. And so today we're gonna do a little bit, we're gonna, I told First Service this, and I, I, weigh, I don't mean to underestimate anyone. I hope I don't, this doesn't sound like I'm underestimating anyone, but like we're gonna dive into the deep end a little bit, and I just challenge you all and encourage you all, come with me, because I really think that what we're gonna do over the next 20 or so minutes is lay the groundwork for you to have absolute certainty about knowing that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. So that's kind of where we're going. Now let's start getting there, all right? Um, so people who know me know that I love a good movie. I'm a, a movie buff. I like a good series, miniseries, things like that. Anything that kind of gets me thinking and has character development, moves me forward and gets me feeling something, I just, I like that. But Really, for me, one of the definitions of what a good movie is, in my mind, is something that I can watch over and over and over again and never tire of. There are several movies in my life that, you know, if I'm flipping through the channels on a Sunday afternoon and there's no football on, I might just stop on one of these movies. And it doesn't matter how often I've seen it, um, I, I'm there for that movie if, it, if it's on and I come across it. A few weeks ago, my son walked into the living room. I was watching Gladiator with Russell Crowe, and, uh, and my son goes, Dad, seriously, you were just watching this like two weeks ago. And I just shrugged and said, I like this movie. What can I say, you know? Because I, I can watch a movie over and over and over again if I really like it. My wife, she's not that way. Once she's seen a movie once, she's, it's dead to her. She's moved on, and she never wants to have anything to do with it again. So I'll just sit there by myself and watch some of these movies. But one of my favorite movies, I have several that I really, really, really like that I can watch over and over. One of them is the timeless classic that is Dumb and Dumber. It is... Now, I know some of you just lost so much uh, respect for me because a moment ago you thought I was going to say something like Citizen Kane or Gone with the Wind or one of these movies that appears on the, the best movies of all time list. Uh, I don't think Dumb and Dumber is on any best movies of all time list, but it certainly is on mine. I really, really like this movie. And uh, one of the reasons why I like it so much is because I'll, I'll sit there and I will quote uh, lines that I think are hilarious. And, you know, to varying degrees, people in my life think they are or aren't hilarious when I say them, but I, I think they're so funny. Um, you know, so there's, there's the most annoying sound in the world, you know, that's from Dumb and Dumber, great part. Uh, you know, there's, there's, we landed on the moon, which is another great one that I love to throw out there once in a while. Um, and there, there, you know, a few years ago, Jess and I were going through kind of a rough season in our lives where I was without work for a while and savings was dwindling, the economy was not doing so great. And uh, every once in a while, just to bring some levity and some, you know, fun, I guess, to a tough situation, we'd find ourselves looking at each other and going, we got no food, we got no jobs, our pets' heads are falling off, you know. And uh, fortunately, our pets were fine, no heads fell off during that season. But the other two things were true during that time. And so it was just a fun way to just bring some, some levity to a, a difficult situation in our lives. But one of my other favorite moments in the movie and favorite lines comes toward the end of the movie where Lloyd, 
who is played by Jim Carrey, has been pursuing this woman the entire movie, trying to uh, build up the courage to let her know how he feels about her. And he finally gets the opportunity to do this, and it goes like this. I, I like you, Mary. <laughs> I like you a lot. <laughs> I want to ask you a question straight out. Flat out, I want you to give me the honest answer. What do you think the chances are of a guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? Well, Lloyd, that's difficult to say. We really don't... Hit me with it. Just give it to me straight. I came a long way just to see you, Mary. Just least you can do is level with me. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. I read you. I love it. Honestly, that's one of the areas where I want to be a little bit more like Lloyd in my life. Like I, I, some people here, the odds are one in a million and you just quit. You just give up. Ah, it's not even worth trying. Lloyd here's one in a million. He's pressing forward. You know, I, I want to have a little bit more of that in my personality. Um, so obviously the, the, the odds of one in a million are very long odds. I, I recently read about this Mega Millions lottery that happened in the, uh, over the past few months. Um, and and uh, the, the, the jackpot had built up to $1.05 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B. And so that's $1,050,000,000 for this jackpot. And so it had accumulated, and for weeks and weeks, nobody was picking the right numbers. And then finally, on January 23rd, just a couple months ago, uh, a, lucky, a, a winner was drawn. Somebody had actually purchased the winning numbers. And, um, and it turns out that a, a lucky winner in Michigan, man, woman, we don't know who this person was. We, we, they've stayed, under, I guess, as far as I could find, very uh, private about this, uh, which sounds like a good idea. Um, and this person won the $1.05 billion jackpot, which after taxes, just so you know, is only $776 million. So, you know, how are they going to stretch that out, right? Um, but, but, but this person was able to take home this big prize. And, and I, I wondered, what are the odds of somebody winning that much money? And so I did a little research. And according to the Mega Millions website, there were, uh, it, the, the odds came to about one in 305 million, okay? So if you thought Lloyd's odds of winning Mary over were long at one in a million, this is 305 times tougher for this to happen at one in 305 million to win a billion dollars. So today what I wanna do is I wanna talk to you about this, 
this thing that Jesus actually did and the odds of him doing it was actually a lot longer than the odds that we talked about with Lloyd and with this Mega Millions winner. So today, we're gonna be looking in Matthew chapter 27. As Dave said, we're looking at the verses um, that, that show us what Jesus said from the cross. And there were a few phrases that he said, and there's a lot of meaning tied up in them. And so today, we're gonna look at one of them in particular. And it comes to us in Matthew 27, starting in verse 45. And this is what we read there. It says, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out, with a loud voice, and he said this, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And the other translations say forsaken. Why have you left me? Why have you forgotten me? So this is something that is really interesting. One of Jesus's last words as he hung on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So at a first reading, as you're kind of going through this, and maybe you're new to the Bible, you're coming across this, and you may look at this and just think to yourself, well, Jesus is just, it, this is an emotional outburst. This is one of those moments, it's kind of like a woe is me. You know, he's had a rough go, obviously, right? Think about the circumstances. Jesus has been betrayed by one of his closest friends over to his enemies. His other friends have scattered and left him for the most part. There's at least one staying with him till the end, but they all promised they'd be with him until the end, and they're all gone now except for this one friend, John. And, you know, he's been beaten mercilessly, flogged, uh, whipped, uh, tortured, you know, just beaten beyond recognition, People who just a week earlier had been singing his praises and talking about him as the son of God are now mocking him and ridiculing him publicly. So if anyone has ever had reason to feel sorry for themselves and feel like just with an emotional outburst, my God, why have you, what have you forgotten about me here? Jesus had that reason. He had plenty of reason to feel that way. But I believe that Jesus's outburst was far more than uh, one of these situations. This wasn't a situation where Jesus was just feeling badly for himself. This was so much more. And I want to show you what that means today. And before we get into that, I just, I just think this is a, a, a kind of an important little side note that goes along with this message. And this is a whole other message that can be taught another time. But um, one of the really cool things that you need to know about the God of the Christian faith is that he, unlike other gods in other faiths, can relate to you in your weakness. Did you know that? God came and lived a life on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He, was, he, he experienced loss. He experienced hardship. He experienced pain. He experienced, uh, you know, rejection by people. So all the pain that you have ever gone through, our God has gone through it as well. And he can relate to you and he can carry you through because he's been there. So that's a really important, I just, this morning as I was kind of thinking about this message, I just really felt like I needed to say that. Somebody here, somebody watching online uh, needs to know that your God has been there and he has walked through that. So I do believe that Jesus's words as he hangs on the cross is more than just a, an emotional outburst. There is something very intentional that's happening here. So why did Jesus say these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first of those two reasons that we're going to look at here today is that Jesus was actively fulfilling the messianic prophecies. Now, 
I don't know about you, but I'm, I, I like watching these uh, murder mystery shows, okay? Uh, so I watch, um, I'm not talking about like the, the fictional ones like Hawaii Five-0 or, um, uh, you know, CSI or whatever those are. I'm talking about things like Dateline NBC and 2020. Have you ever seen those shows? It, it's, it's so ironic. Jess and I, every time we turn on one of those shows, we, are always, we always look at each other and we're like, you know, the, you know the husband did it, right? You know, because it's always the husband who kills the wife. It always, just put your money on it and you'll have pretty short odds, I guess, in that case. Um, But on Dateline NBC and shows like this, one of the things that I've realized from watching those is that when you, when an investigator arrives at a crime scene, one of the first things they begin looking for is either DNA evidence or fingerprint evidence, right? DNA or fingerprint. Why is that such a big deal? Why is that something that they are so actively trying to find at a crime scene? It's because DNA evidence is one of the most absolutely sure signs that you have linked a person's presence to a crime scene. There is such a, an infinitely small chance that two people in the world could have the same DNA. So if you get a DNA hit at a, at a crime scene and you have a match in the system, you know with absolute certainty that that person was somehow involved in that crime. And I believe that in a similar way, God has given us a very unique identifier a very unique, uh, something that can really help us with certainty know who his son is. And that is the Old Testament prophecies that are, that are spoken about the Messiah. These are called the Messianic prophecies. A few weeks ago, we talked about uh, what is, who is the Messiah. And the Messiah is a, a Hebrew word that means the anointed one of God. And within the understanding of who the Messiah would be, he would be the son of God, He would be the savior of the world. He would be God's chosen one, his instrument of salvation for the world. And so there were all of these prophecies, over 300 unique prophecies that were spoken and written down hundreds of years before Jesus came by several different authors over the course of different centuries with different audiences. I mean, there, there were just so many of them that spanned across history that told of the forecoming of this, this son of God who would come and be God's chosen instrument of salvation. And there were a, a whole range of these prophecies. You know, some of them, uh, you know, would be things that a person could willfully fulfill if he wanted to. If I, you know, somebody could look at Zechariah 9, which says that the, the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, which is a young donkey. And somebody could read that and think, whoa, I want somebody to think I'm the Messiah, so I'm gonna get me a colt of a donkey and I'm gonna ride in, I'm gonna get people talking. So there are some prophecies, a couple of them, where somebody could willfully fulfill those through his or her actions or words. But for the most part, the prophecies that were written about the Messiah were ones that nobody could have any control over. For instance, many of them had to deal with where the Messiah would be born, to what family he would be born, uh, the manner of his birth, the manner of his death, the betrayal, that he would be betrayed by a close friend, the, the price of the betrayal, how he would die. All of these things were outside of anyone's control that were all prophesied about the coming Messiah. 
And so when Jesus is hanging on the cross, I don't believe he utters these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. I don't believe he utters them idly. I believe he is making a very bold claim in that moment, and he is connecting the dots between one of the most famous, well-known prophecies of the coming Messiah to his actions on the cross that day. Let's, let's look at this. This is an Old Testament um, proverb, I'm sorry, an Old Testament prophecy uh, that comes to us in Psalm chapter 22. This is how the, the chapter starts. It says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, and, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Now, these words were written by David, and you have to know this. Some of you may already know this. The Psalms were a collection of songs. So these are really lyrics to a song. It was a song of lament, uh, sadness, brokenness, and they were written by David. David was, of course, one of the mightiest kings of Israel, but this was written long before he became king. He had been anointed as king, but the current king was named Saul, and Saul sat on the throne at this time, and Saul was very jealous of David. And so because of this jealousy and this insecurity Saul had, knowing that he was going to take over his throne and, and Saul's family wouldn't continue the, king, the kingship, um, there was a little bit of tension, a lot of tension in that relationship. And so over and over and over again, Saul would accuse David of things he had not done, he would hunt him down. And so a lot of David's life at this point as a young adult, he, he spent running, living on the run, fearing for his life, living out of caves, being lied about, being accused of things he had never done. And when he writes these words, he's writing them from the sorrow within his own heart. But as he's doing this, he's actually prophesying about the, the same condition, the same situation that the Messiah would one day be in. You see, this is known among the Jewish people as the, the psalm of the righteous sufferer, which basically means this. There is a, a person who has been accused of something he has not done and is suffering for these accusations, but it's not, he did not do them. And that was the, certainly the situation for David, and it became the situation for Jesus as he hung on the cross, accused of crimes he hadn't committed, and, and hanging there, uh, for things that were basically lies that had been brought against him. And so what Jesus is doing is he offers up these words as he is saying he's making a very bold connection. Most of the audience in that, who were, audience is a weird word, most of the crowd around Jesus while he was, he was dying on the cross, most of them would have been Jewish. Some would have been Romans and, and therefore not understood the, the, the context of this. But when Jesus says only those four words, it's just like the beginning of a song. You know how some people, it's the beginning of a song and, and, and somebody can say those four words and then you can fill in the blanks and you know the rest of the song and the song's stuck in your head the rest of the day or, you know, something like that. That's what was happening here. Jesus just gives the first four words and then the, 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 everyone else is making the connection. I see what he's saying. There's a bold proclamation that's being said. It's as if Jesus is saying, you know that messianic prophecy that you've heard about for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and you've been watching and you've been waiting for the coming Messiah. Do you see that that is being fulfilled in front of your very eyes in this moment? See, there had been numerous people who had come who had claimed to be the Messiah before Jesus. There were other people who, who it, claims were made about them that they could be the Messiah. But the thing is, all those people came and went without ever fulfilling the prophecies. 
So what would it have been like for one person to fulfill these prophecies? What, what do you think the odds were of somebody fulfilling? Let's just take eight of the prophecies. There are over 300. 300 is just too hard for me to wrap my mind around, but there are eight major prophecies. And what do you think the odds are of one person fulfilling these eight prophecies? You think it's like Lloyd's odds of one in a million? Or maybe it's a little longer odds of like one in 305 million? Well, how about this? One in 100 quadrillion, okay? One, so that's one with 17 zeros after it. Now, when I read that, I was like, wait, quadrillion, that's a made-up number, you know? It, it totally sounds made up, doesn't it? Like, one of, those na- one of those numbers that kids say when they're really trying to emphasize a point, you know? Like, I feel like my kids, when they were little, would say, Mommy, I love you a hundred quadrillion, you know, something like that. And, uh, and, but it sounds like a, f- a fake, made-up number. But the reality is that the odds of one person fulfilling only eight of the many, 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 many prophecies that were written about the Messiah were one in 100 quadrillion. Now, let me blow your mind a little bit more. If you have trouble wrapping your mind around that, this is, this is what that would be like. Okay, imagine we had a bunch of silver dollars. You know, like, I don't know if there are really even silver dollars around anymore, but they're a coin that's about this big. And, uh, and we drew an X on one of them with a red marker, and then we just covered the entire state of Texas, all of the land of Texas with silver dollars. Not just one layer, but we're talking two feet deep, Okay. Two feet deep of silver dollars, one of them has a red X on it. The entire state is covered. Then we take you, we blindfold you, we spin you around, and we say, go. You get one shot to find the red X. Those are the same odds as what Jesus had of fulfilling these eight major prophecies of the Messiah. Absolutely astronomical, and yet he did it. So Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy. When you look at the prophecies and look at Jesus's life, you see fulfillment in, on, everywhere. And so Jesus was in every way made possible, it was made possible for us to understand that he was the person that he claimed to be there. There's another reason I want to get to uh, regarding Jesus's uh, reason for saying this, these words. Because in the moment where he was hanging on the cross and he says, God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by God in that moment. Now think about this. Jesus, um, you know, the, we talked about it a little bit ago. He, he wasn't guilty of any of the crimes he had been accused of. He was the righteous sufferer. He was innocent. And so he didn't deserve to be hanging there. But yet he was hanging there willingly. Why was he doing that? Because he knew that the Old Testament had established that God's, that, that anyone who wanted to be in relationship with God, that, that sin had to be punished in, for that person. And so what would happen, if you know the Old Testament, God loved people, and so he, off, they, he allowed them to offer a sacrifice to take their place. And so... Jesus, as he sits there on the cross, he is literally the embodiment of the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that would, um, that would bring people back into relationship with God for all time. So as he hangs there, in that moment, he is the embodiment of sin and everything that has ever separated you and me from God. In that moment, he has been completely forsaken by God because he is bearing the sin of the world on his shoulders. 
First Peter chapter one tells us this. I wanna show you this. This is really cool. This is Peter, the disciple. You know him probably. Uh, he wrote this to the early church years after Jesus' resurrection. He says, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. So every person was born into this world and, and eventually we come to find out this world is very empty, very meaningless, very hopeless apart from what we're gonna go into here. And he says, and it was not paid, this ransom was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value, but it was paid with the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him, as your ransom before the world began. And in these last days, he has been revealed to you. So what does this verse tell us? This verse tells us a couple of things. Number one, that Jesus is the one way to find salvation with God. The one way, because he was the chosen one. He was the, the one who had the, the empowerment to, um, to bring salvation. And then secondly, he was the plan from the beginning. You have to understand this. Jesus was not like a plan B. He was not something that came after God tried another way and, and it didn't really work out. Jesus was the plan all along. From the beginning of time, Jesus' death on the cross was the plan for your salvation and mine. So here's what I want you to know. As you walk away from here today and as you start thinking about uh, what Jesus' sacrifice on the cross means to you as we lead up to Easter. Here's one thing you need to understand about his sacrifice as he hung on the cross. You, it's that Jesus was forsaken by God so that you wouldn't have to be. Think about that for just a moment. Jesus was forsaken by God so that you wouldn't have to be. As he hung on the cross, he took that separation. He took the punishment. He took all of the stuff that you and I deserve and the separation from God so that you could be connected to God through having faith in what he did for you. You see, God set things up so that you and I could be absolutely, positively, 100% positive that he was who he said he was. He was the, the um, instrument of salvation on the earth. You don't have to sit there and wonder, well, was Jesus really, you know, the son of God? Was he really equipped to uh, save me from my sin? Was he really? You don't have to wonder that. You just look at the prophecies. The prophets said that the one who was equipped in that way would fulfill these things. And against astronomical odds, Jesus fulfilled all of them. And so he is, without doubt, 100%, the son of God who was sent to take away your sin and mine. So he was more than a carpenter. He was more than a prophet. He was more than a teacher. He was more than a religious rabbi. He was and is the embodiment of God's salvation in the world. And you can go home and go through your week over these next few days 100% positive that Jesus was equipped for that purpose and he is able to be your savior. Let me pray for you here this morning. Father, thank you so much for uh, uh, sending Jesus. Lord, we know that it was our mess. We made the mess. We had the problem. And you didn't just sit there and stand indifferently and let us try to figure it out. You sent the Savior. You saved us from ourselves, Lord, in spite of ourselves. And you sent Jesus and gave us the prophets and all the, these unique identifiers like DNA so we could pinpoint with certainty who he was. And God, as we look at Jesus, help every person here today to see him for who he is as your son who is equipped and empowered to take away their sin and connect them to God 
In Jesus' name, amen.